This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Dora, have you given any thought as to how you want to bring in 2020? I can't believe it's so close that the year is coming to an end and we're coming into a new year. Yes, we're hosting in partnership with the Gasparilla Inn a wellness experience on January 27th in Boca Grande, Florida. What's going to happen down there? We're going to be doing cooking demonstrations. We're going to be walking on the beach. We're going to be doing yoga every morning. We're going to be learning from world-class teachers on how to take better care of ourselves. I mean, it's just going to be amazing. So go to our website, bbrconsulting.us, to learn more and to sign up. And we look forward to seeing you on January 27th. Can't wait to see you all there. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Brandon Nappy is a spiritual teacher, speaker, and writer who passionately believes in the capacity of the human spirit to awaken. Inspired by the common wisdom of the world's spiritual traditions, he has dedicated his life's work to sharing the transformative power of mindfulness practice. He founded Copper Beach Institute in 2014 and is the Institute's executive director. Please welcome Dr. Brandon Nappy, our new friend, to HealthGig. Thank you so much. It's a a great gift to be here. Yes, it's great to have you here, Brandon. We want to start and just hear a little bit about you and how you became the founder of the Copper Beach Institute. Sure. I've had a lifelong interest in how people answer and ask the great questions of life. Why am I here? What gives my life purpose? How do I respond to the most difficult challenges that a human being can face, loss and disappointment? How can I grow my heart to love more deeply? So really, the questions that I've been interested in for so long have been about how we as human beings reach our fullest potential, how we can be of service, and how we can live a spiritual life, a life that's in service to others, deeply connected to others, uh, to our communities, and to give back in a sustainable way. My roots in asking those questions and wrestling with those answers actually began in Catholic seminary where I was studying to be a priest at the University of Notre Dame. I was a theology and medieval studies major. Back up from there, though. So where were you born and raised? Uh, I was born and raised (laughs) in Waterbury, Connecticut. And then in a Catholic family? In a practicing Catholic family and a very second-generation Italian immigrant experience where a family and faith and being of service were incredibly important. And the one message that my parents gave to me is explore how you can be of service in some way in the world. And, Mm. And that was their encouragement and really their only limitation. Wow. And then you found yourself at Notre Dame. So you probably were really smart. (laughs) Well, you know, I think what I discovered over my childhood is that teachers saw in me a kind of curiosity. And of course, it's hard to see yourself when you're young. You have no perspective on what your unique brilliance is. And I think if I have one unique brilliance, it's just that I'm so curious both about the world, what provides meaning, and how other people seek meaning. It became clear after graduating that I wanted to support other people's exploration, and I wanted to support their quest for meaning and purpose and service and ultimately healing in the world. And so I started in seminary. There were nine of us in our class, and only one of us was ordained in the end. And I left because I really felt drawn to being married and having a family and having children, which was a great gift in my life many years later. 
But I left with this commitment to curiosity and to learning. So I went on to divinity school and I studied at Yale Divinity School. And then upon graduation, began leading retreats at the largest Catholic retreat center in the country, Holy Family Passionist Retreat Center, which really lit within me a kind of fire for this experience of stepping back from life and creating this space for stillness, for quiet, to explore, once again, the deep questions of life. Mm. How did your Catholic faith influence your interest in mindfulness? The great gift of my Catholic experience, I would name in two ways. First, the quiet of sacred spaces always moved me. As a, a high school student in the summertime, I worked as a janitor in the church. And so I was able just to be in the quiet. And I realized that there was something that came alive within me in silence and in quiet. And I didn't know in those adolescent years that this would be a pursuit of mine for the rest of my life, pursuing the sacred and pursuing the kind of peace and serenity that I found in the quiet. And the great question that emerged over and over was, how do I find the same peace, the same serenity and stillness that I experience alone in a silent church? How can I experience that same peace in a busy, hectic world? Uh, so that was, uh, I think, the first gift. And the second was the connection between the inner spiritual life and being of service in the world. I think it's so interesting that you talk about how comfortable you are with stillness, because I think in our society, that's something that people struggle with, being still and quiet and having to fill their time with so many things, usually unhealthy things. Yeah, we see a kind of addiction to busyness. And we actually brag about it and we wear it as a badge of honor. When we see our friends, we instantly confess and almost brag about the level of busyness and hyperactivity that is a part of our lives. Most of us are not going to be hermits or monks and live in monasteries. And so we have to find a healthier balance because I think the pace that many of us are running at is unsustainable. And what we learn in mindfulness practice is that we can actually create a kind of sanctuary of stillness on the inside of this reservoir, which can then support us and carry us as we move through life that can get full and hectic. What do you see as the top benefits of mindfulness? I think the benefit that feels most powerful to me is equanimity, this wonderful word, which comes from two Latin words, which means the same or even and soul. So what we're practicing in mindfulness is a kind of groundedness within. To use a visual metaphor, it's kind of the calm at the center of the storm, right? It's, it's the eye of the hurricane. It's not that we can stop the winds from moving, but we can act from that inner place of stillness. So I think that's the first that comes to mind. Secondly, I would name compassion as a real discovery for me that wasn't an initial motivator in bringing me to practice. Compassion for myself is something that I recently discovered in the last decade or so of my life. I thought that compassion was only motivated toward others. And for most of my life, I tried to live in service of others. But what I really came to understand was that was like breathing with one lung or flying with one wing, it was really limiting and unsustainable ultimately. So what we practice in mindfulness is both a kind of compassion for our own experience as we welcome whatever it is that's arising, which then allows us to radiantly shine for others. If I could name a third, and this is maybe the most common thing that actually brings people to our center, Copper Beach Institute, and that's that they're suffering in some way. Mm. Mindfulness helps us to suffer less and to live happier lives. 
What's interesting is that what initially brings people in the door, their incredible suffering and their hope that they could ease and alleviate that suffering in some way, is often not what keeps them in the room. What keeps them in the room is the kind of interconnection they feel in the community of practitioners or the kind of joy that they experience even amid the suffering. So all of us, I think, come to mindfulness, or many of us, come with a kind of hope that we're going to find the secret light switch and shut off suffering. We don't find that so much, but what we do find is this reservoir of strength, of courage, even of deep, deep contentment that's available in the midst of that suffering. And it's just a great gift to be a part of a community that really nurtures that. Brandon, before we started the show, you were sharing with Dara and me what's on your mind these days. Could you share with our listeners what we were just talking about? I sense myself most coming alive when I get to talk about the connection between inner peace and peace in our world, or healing within the heart and healing within the community. Often, mindfulness and meditation in the popular media and in social media is described as an individual quest to enlightenment. And it certainly is that. It's certainly an individual journey. It's one that no one else can take for you, that requires a kind of responsibility for your own happiness and taking care of your own pain. This is a really important piece of the puzzle, but it's not the entire puzzle. And what we really believe is that the healing that we can experience within us with some mindfulness practice then ripples out into our families, ripples out into the workplace. It can support our work in the world in a really, really powerful way. So this is why last year we began an outreach in the workplace because we realized there was so much suffering there and that if we could teach people really simple and powerful skills in the workplace, it could also help their personal lives, not only their creativity or their productivity, but their personal lives, the community work that they do. One of our mantras at Copper Beach Institute comes from the wonderful spiritual contemplative teacher, Richard Rohr, who loves to say, pain that isn't transformed is transferred. So the pain that we've experienced in our lives will just be shared with others unless we intentionally welcome some kind of practice that can bring healing to our lives. If you were someone who had never heard of mindfulness or meditation, how would you recommend they begin a practice? This practice is so simple. And I think what's really important to remember is that all of us as children we're naturally mindful. So this isn't in some way a foreign skill or something that needs to be added to the human person. What we're really doing in practice is we're just awakening what as children we knew how to do when we played, when we watched a sunset, when we uh, played with our toes as babies in the crib. Really what we're talking about in mindfulness is paying attention on purpose in the present moment, this is the classic definition from a wonderful John Kabat-Zinn, right, at the UMass Medical School. So in beginning a practice, I actually encourage people not to bite off too much meditation, to just start with the body, to start with feeling the feet on the floor. Some recent research suggests that 48% of the time we're distracted in our lives. It's staggering to think of we're blessed enough to live 100 years that 48 of them would have been essentially missed. Thinking, projecting into the future, projecting into the past, unconsciously distracted. So we believe that these very simple practices can actually, in a sense, add years to our life. So when we work with beginners at Copper Beach, we're working with directing attention throughout various senses in the body. So we often just start with feet on the floor meditation, taking a moment to feel the soles of the feet 
actually feeling the experience of the earth rising up to support our bodies. So working with the body is a really grounding way to come back to the present moment because, of course, the body is incapable of existing in the past or the future. The body is naturally mindful. So bringing some attention to bodily sensation, like the feet on the floor, instantly attunes us to the present moment, and you can do it anywhere. This is one of the ways that we bring a simple practice to the workplace. And we like to joke, if you're in the midst of a really intense meeting, if you're in the midst of some conflict, you can't necessarily come on out to Copper Beach and meditate. You can't separate yourself and spend 10 minutes in meditation, but you can always direct attention to your feet. It's a practice you can do when you're in the moment, as the moment is unfolding with other people. You were talking about the inner healing of ourselves and then how that relates to the healing of our communities or our world. Could you go back to that and expand on that? Well, I think what we come to see in our mindfulness practice is the kind of unconscious patterns and habits that maybe at one point in life really served us quite well, but that we've outgrown. Mindfulness is really just bringing into consciousness what has been unconscious. And so we might discover that there's a pattern in our lives that's actually causing ourselves harm and others harm. And so what we do in mindfulness is we look with exceptional courage and compassion at how we're living. And sometimes it's really, really difficult to take a look at the patterns in relationship, patterns in workaholism, patterns with the addiction or how we handle pain. When we can look really honestly about how we're living, then we can make healthier choices. Quoting Viktor Frankl, the wonderful Holocaust survivor and psychiatrist, who said, between stimulus and response, there's a space. What mindfulness does is it acts in that spatial region, and it actually creates a bigger and bigger space. So when we are triggered, we then realize that we have a choice in how we respond. Without some kind of practice, most of us react rather than respond. In other words, we're not responding out of the deepest wisdom that's within us. And so, as we spoke of before, we end up transferring our own pain, our own habit patterns to others. So this habit that I've got, this negative thing about me, I kind of see that then in you? Often what happens is we shift into a kind of victim mentality. I've been wronged. And the whole world is to blame. And then so we angrily project out at other people and we lash out and we make decisions that are hurtful or harmful. And so the very people whom we often love the most then begin absorbing the effects of all of these habit patterns that we've developed over a lifetime. So I think the first beneficiaries of mindfulness practice are the people we live with. That makes a lot of sense. Richie Davison, who has been on our podcast, talks about well-being as a skill, and he's a neuroscientist, so he talks about the neuroscientific constituents of well-being, resilience, outlook, attention, and generosity. Can you touch on some of that and talk about the plasticity in the brain and what he's talking about? The great insight in the last generation of contemplative neuroscience that Richard Davidson and many others have been on the forefront of is that our brains grow and develop and change. And at one point, of course, we believed rather pessimistically that by late adolescence, you sort of had all the skills that you could develop in terms of the brain's activity. And of course, we've learned that all of these great skills like generosity and compassion and kindness and mindfulness are skills that can be developed over time. 
And so we see Copper Beach Institute as a kind of laboratory where we can come and experiment with these practices. It's almost like a gym for the heart. We had someone who came on retreat last week and said to me, I feel like my heart has grown 10 times since I came here. I think the insight of so many spiritual traditions, and this is the case throughout history, is that we practice our way into wholeheartedness. It's not enough simply to want to be kinder, to want to be more generous and loving. Of course, that's a wonderful place to start, right? Because energy follows intention. So it's a wonderful beginning point. We start with this intention. I want to stretch my heart more open. I want to be more generous. I want to have more compassion for myself and for others. And the great insight of contemplative traditions is that we practice our way into wholeness. And mindfulness is one of those ways of nurturing this gradual and slow opening of the heart. What about vulnerability? Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, this work of mindfulness is incredibly vulnerable. And of course, Brene Brown has done such a wonderful service of bringing this word into our popular conversations now. And we like to be very honest when we talk about welcoming people into mindfulness practice for the first time, because while it is true that mindfulness will deepen our experience of love and of joy and of reciprocity, and contentment, and I believe that to the core of my being, it will also open us up to the depth of sadness and anger. So this practice is incredibly vulnerable because it opens us up to all of the emotions that we as human beings can feel. So I always like to remind our beginners, mindfulness is not calm 24-7. It's not the absence of emotion. We're not creating zombies who are unaffected by what is happening in the world. I wouldn't want to live in that world where people are unaffected. So I'm really thankful for this language of vulnerability, which is simply opening our hearts to the risk of this life. And anything worth doing requires risk, right? Any great heroic act, any blessing, any love requires some amount of risk and not being in control. And that's one of the first things we often have to talk about in our mindfulness practice is that we're not trying to control the world or our thoughts or anyone else. And most of us have actually been rewarded for being really good at controlling things. Mm. And so there is a kind of letting go that's right at the heart of this work and it's extremely vulnerable. And what we find is with this practice of vulnerability, is incredible joy and connection and service. It's really the necessary ingredient to all of these practices that as we practice, in fact, we're going to change and we're going to grow, which requires letting go of how we were yesterday. Mm. And uh, for some of us, that can be really scary. So when people aren't willing to feel the pain and the emotions that can come up with mindfulness, what happens? We can live in denial and we can begin to self-medicate this is one of the things that we see a lot of. You know, we work with folks who are in recovery from addiction, and initially they're really scared to feel what they have been ignoring for years and years, past trauma. We're really, really careful not to rush into practice and to be extremely gentle and to really make sure that they are aware of the kind of intensity that might, for some of them, really arise. So addiction, self-medication, lashing out at others if we don't take care of our pain, profound depression and anxiety that may seem to have no exact explanation, a kind of vague sense of unease. 
The Buddhist word dukkha is really just a word that describes the dis-ease in life. Many of us come to mindfulness, particularly because we feel like there's this misalignment, that something's off, that something is not satisfactory to us. And so when we don't take care of our pain, this is the first signal. It's just something is off. And we celebrate that. That's a wonderful signal. So our own emotions are a really powerful messenger to us, which is why it's so important that we attune ourselves to what's actually happening in the body, what's actually happening in the emotional landscape, because they have such important messages. And the first is always just to take care of and make space for those feelings that arise. Trisha and I often talk about that. In fact, we were talking about it today, talking about something that was occurring in my life. And Trisha would tell me, well, you need to headlong dive right back into it. And that's how you're going to get through it. Not around it, not ignoring it, but walking right back through. Oh, thank you for that reminder. The way through it is through it. Right. And we often get really creative about other options. All right. I could do this. I could do that. And it's amazing the energy, actually, that we will expend to work around a problem. Um, <laughs> so true. Rather than just dive in. But there's the vulnerability that we talked about again. I'm fond of saying if you can feel everything and anything that a human being can feel, then you will be free. The purpose of our mindfulness practice is freedom. True freedom. And that freedom then makes joy and love and compassion and service really possible. So um, that's on your website. It is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that I think a lot of us do is we tell ourselves stories. So it's not so easy to look at the truth because I can tell myself why I did something and I can actually believe that and act that way. So can you talk about that and how do we stop telling ourselves stories and really live from the truth? That's vulnerability. One of the first things that we notice when we start practicing mindfulness or meditation is that there's this whole stream of monologue that is happening in any given moment. And there's this running commentary of opinion, of judgment, of analysis. And some of it is quite appropriate and might be somewhat accurate. But if we take a look long enough, we notice how random and arbitrary and simply untrue a lot of the conceptual material is that floats down the stream of our mind. So we notice in our practice that we are not our thoughts, that who I am is infinitely larger and so much more vast than the conceptual mind. It's important to make the distinction, though, that the mind isn't bad, and meditation isn't a way of stopping or clearing the mind, but it's simply a way of noticing this inner monologue. So how incredibly freeing it is to remember that we are not our thoughts, and in fact, much of our thought is just fiction. And so it's a wonderful practice to just observe thoughts and then reflect a little bit how much of this is really true or how much of this is just a kind of creation and a projection. And what I've come to understand is a great percentage of the stories I make up, I don't need to believe. And so many of those stories have to do with my own inadequacy, my own not being enough. So many of us really struggle with this wound of not being good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, this chasm of never enough that's within us. And one of the most freeing things that I've experienced is to understand that that's simply a fiction right? and that who I am is just infinitely more vast 
So when we started, you were saying that 48% of the time we're not in the present moment. How much of that is spent doing this, these stories, these ideas, these thoughts? Is that part of the 48% or is that the other 52% of the time? Gosh, well, if we look at some of the deep, deep suffering that we see in the world and the kind of mess that we've made of much of our world and our communities, my suspicion is that the percentage is higher than we might initially think. You know, there's practice then if we think about the kind of collective ramifications of this or even the global ramifications. This is not a quaint pastime that really caring for ourselves, really thinking about our own well-being and our own wholeheartedness is a profound gift that we make to ourselves, to our families, to our communities and to the world so that we don't continue the cycles of violence that we're often inflicting first on ourselves, right? This is why self-compassion is so mm. important. Few of us would ever speak to another human being <laughs> the way we speak to ourselves. You talk a lot about service. What is it about service that is so important? For me, I understand that everything is connected. And Albert Einstein said, everything that exists is connected to everything else. So there's just a deep, deep reverence for the interconnectivity of our world and of human beings that has nudged me along in service. So there's a kind of multiplier effect that when we extend kindness to another and they're touched and they're moved then to be of service to their network. So I've always felt from those earliest conversations with my parents and my Catholic roots that we're here to support the full flourishing of one another so that I'm here to help you reach your fullest potential because you've already helped me reach mine, that there's a kind of synergy, there's a kind of interconnectivity that's given me great joy to honor and to discover. You know, at Copper Beach Institute, we made a commitment when we began, not only would we become a national and an international center where people could come and train in mindfulness, but that we would also go out into the community to be of service among those who we know for whatever reason couldn't come to us. So work began in the earliest moments in the jail when we knew there was deep, deep suffering and pain. And so to be present in the jail or in the homeless center or in the rehab for folks in recovery just makes us come alive. And to have a front row seat to people waking up to their own goodness, to people tasting self-compassion for the first time, that they don't have to live in loathing or that they can find some new way of dealing with pain. We had a veteran who just called me last week who was in a terrible diving accident, was completely paralyzed from the neck down. So he said, you know, I just want you to know that I will never be able to come to Copper Beach Institute, but I listen to your live stream meditation every week and I'm in constant pain. And it has helped me so much to feel connected and to just be with this excruciating pain. That in and of itself would have been enough and overwhelming. But he ended his beautiful sharing with me with this question. He said, I want to be of service in some way. How can I help you? And of course, telling his story is incredibly inspiring to us. The service that he offered to our country and the service that he offers to all of us right now in the courageous meeting of our own pain. He's made a commitment. I don't want my pain to be transferred out into the world. I want to take care of this pain that I have so that, that my heart can grow in compassion. We were working at a homeless center in the, in the midst of Hartford, and, and we had a gentleman who struggles with chronic mental illness and homelessness, and it was right in the midst of a cold snap in New England. It was negative five below. 
he came into our group and we were practicing meditation for 25 minutes. And he said afterward, this practice helps me to be more loving to the community of my friends out on the streets. So when I hear that, God, my heart comes alive. So, so maybe, Doro, to answer your question, it's just selfish. Like, I get so much more than I ever give, and I'm so thankful for it. Listening to you and experiencing you, there's definitely a priestliness about you. You feel very spiritual and very authentic, and it's just awesome to experience. How do you describe prayer now as a person that's been studying mindfulness, teaching mindfulness, having a center about mindfulness? A particular area of interest of mine is the intersection between meditation practice and Christian spirituality. I know many people who practice meditation from the Buddhist perspective. I know folks who practice meditation who are spiritual but not religious. I know atheists who practice meditation because the neuroscience is convincing and it can help them reduce stress and live their fullest life. For me, as a Christian, I understand that meditation is one way of surrendering to, as my friends in recovery would say, my higher power. The Christian insight or contribution to the great conversation that world religions have been having for millennia is that God is love and that God is relational. You come to encounter the divine in relationship to others and that you grow in the image and likeness of God by sharing love with others. The scriptures say God is, God is love. And so for me, meditation is one way of stretching my heart more open so that the divine light and love and grace can flow more through me, a little bit more today than yesterday. It's the great prayer of St. Francis, right? Make me a channel of your peace. And so hopefully life is a journey of continually and slowly and gradually expanding the channel through which the very love of God flows out into the world. What is your daily mindfulness practice? So my practice is to meditate each day in the morning for about 25 minutes. And then as often as I can, finish with some Rumi poetry, the poetry of the wonderful a Sufi Muslim mystic has nourished many, many hearts and souls. Although what I notice in my body some days is that seated meditation is not what my body would like. And so sometimes I will practice my meditation laying down. Some days I'll practice walking meditation. Some days I'll practice standing up meditation. So the practice is really flexible. And so one of the things that we learn when we teach beginner mindfulness at Copper Beach Institute is there's many many different postures. And our bodies over a lifetime may need a little something different. And so we can actually be flexible and find many different ways of practicing. What's one book that you think everyone should read? A book that really opened my heart to mindfulness is Pieces Every Step by Thich Nhat Hanh, the wonderful Vietnamese Zen teacher who's still alive, and his teaching is incredibly gentle and incredibly simple. And so whenever folks are asking for a book, I'll begin there because you can read five pages or even one page, and it can begin to change your life. It's a book that I still keep by my bed. It continues to nourish me. I think what's beautiful about mindfulness is that we can start really with small practices, moments. So for some folks, a practice of 25 minutes is overwhelming, but Thich Nhat Hanh offers a practice of one breath, practice a breath anywhere. He offers a practice of washing the dishes mindfully. 
sitting at a red light in traffic. So I think part of what I've really been touched by is just the exquisite simplicity of Thich Nhat Hanh's writing. This conversation has certainly given us so much wisdom and some wonderful quotes. But do you have a favorite one you might want to highlight right now? I do. The greatest gift that we can give in life is our presence. It's really the greatest resource that we have. Often we think that it's our expertise, it's our humor, it's our training, it's our resources. And of course, all of those are incredible assets that can be leveraged in service of the world. But we often devalue just the gift of our presence, which of course is the greatest gift that any of us ever have. And, and often, you know, when we're sitting with loved ones who are in challenging moments, we'll often shift into fix-it mode. None of us enjoys being fixed or being looked at like we're broken. And so I often remind our students at Copper Beach Institute, the greatest gift you have is your presence. And can you really trust that? You really trust that there is a reservoir of healing that can flow through you because healing itself begins with presence. Presence itself is healing. And it's our greatest gift to the world. Brandon, it has been a joy to be with you Incredible. on Health Gig. We're so happy we got to spend this time with you. And I know both Trish and I want to come to Copper Beach Institute. Absolutely. So thank you for being with us. Thank you. It would be an honor to welcome you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.